One of the big problems we have in England is that it never quite snows enough. The last time I can really remember it snowing was at the birth of my son Elijah and that was about five years ago. Because it snows so infrequently we're never quite ready when it does. Which incidentally is why I'm recording this sermon from home rather than in church. I should have been better prepared for the snow. And coincidentally, being prepared is what today's story is all about. We are at the end of our 11-week series, Stories Old and New. And these past few months, we've been exploring together some of the stories that Jesus told, as recorded in Matthew, Mark and Luke. And they're a huge part of Jesus' teaching ministry. Around one-third of his teaching was given in story form and so if we as Christians are going to um, grasp Jesus message to us these stories are really important for how we understand him. So throughout this series we've looked at 10 of these stories at least we will have looked at 10 by the end of this talk Um, but there are 37 in Matthew, Mark and Luke so we're leaving 27 for you to have a look at on your own perhaps if you're a loose end over the Christmas period. I hope that you've found the series helpful in your understanding. Certainly the talks that I've prepared I've felt challenged by what Jesus is saying both to his followers and very often his opponents as well. And as we finish this morning I just want to say a huge thank you to Martin for writing all of the new stories that have been shared alongside these old ones. I think you'll agree it's been hugely helpful in allowing us to hear these sometimes very familiar stories afresh. And thank you also to each of you that has spoken um, these new stories to us each Sunday. We're going to put all of the new stories up on the website this week on the sermon page for you to download if you would like to do so. So then, this is our last parable. It's sometimes referred to as the parable of the ten virgins, or sometimes the parable of the ten bridesmaids. But either way, it's found in Matthew chapter 25. I want to just begin by reading you the story. I'm reading from the New International Version of the Bible, Matthew 25, verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight the cry rang out, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all of the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, 
keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. What a strange little story. I think we have perhaps two barriers to our understanding of this story. First, the first barrier, as always, is the context in which the story is being told. Why is Jesus telling this story now? Who is he speaking to? Because that's important. And we can work this out very simply from reading around the passage. I know we've said it many times before in other series, but the books of the Bible didn't originally have chapters and verses. They were added later to help us to navigate the Bible a bit better, but we need to be really careful when we read verses in isolation. So, for example, this particular story begins with the words, at that time. At what time? Tea time? Home time? Once upon a time? Actually, Jesus is talking about the time of his return. He's talking about when he will come back. And if we cast our eyes back into Matthew chapter 24 for a moment, we can see that this story is a part of a larger conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. Actually, we looked at this in some detail back in week four of the series, but I'll just refresh your memory for a few moments. In verse three of chapter 24, the disciples approach Jesus privately. So we know that he's speaking to his followers and they ask him, tell us when this will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? This, again, is a reference to an even earlier conversation where Jesus had told them that the temple would be destroyed. Something that actually happened later on in AD 70. But this was a huge deal for the disciples because they were Jewish and to them the temple was sacred. In fact, in their minds, the destruction of the temple would surely signify the end of all things. And so, understandably, they want to know when. When is this going to happen? When is the world going to come to an end? And, and Lord, tell us when you're going to come back. And so Jesus begins to tell them some of the things that will happen before he comes back. He talks about war and famine. He talks about earthquakes and persecution and essentially about how difficult things are going to be in his absence. He even warns them that many will turn away from him and turn on each other. And then in verse 36 of chapter 24, he finally circles back around to the disciples' question and says, but about that day or hour, the, the one that you're asking me about, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. And so if you ever see one of those YouTube videos of someone claiming they've figured out all the signs and worked out the maths and now they know the date of the second coming, don't believe them. Because no one knows. And then he says in verse 42, Therefore, keep watch, because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. And so this is our context. Jesus is talking about what it's going to be like when he is not with them. He says it's going to be tough and, and hard going. And he's talking about what will happen in his absence. He says some of you are going to fall away. Some of you are going to turn on each other. And he's talking about what it will eventually be like when he does come back. It will be a surprise because nobody knows the day or the hour. And then he tells a couple of little stories to help them um, explore these ideas further. 
He describes himself as a thief in the night who shows up when the homeowner is speaking unexpectedly. And a master who turns up unexpectedly while his servant is misbehaving, beating his fellow servants and so on. Some will fall away. And then we arrive at this morning's story where he is a groom arriving to collect his bride. So this is our context. This is where the story fits into the bigger picture, the bigger narrative of the Bible itself. Jesus' followers want to know when he's coming back. And he doesn't give them a time or a date, but he does tell them it will be unexpected and crucially that not everyone will be ready for his return. And so we can see that this story is starting to make a little more sense. Our second barrier to understanding this story is its setting. Jesus has used this setting before, a wedding celebration, on a number of occasions. In fact, we looked at it together two weeks ago at the wedding banquet in Matthew 22. And we spoke then about how weddings were great occasions of celebration and joy, flowing with food and drink, and in particular wine, lots and lots of wine. They were this picture of happiness of joy and the story a few weeks ago focused on the invitation made to the guests to come and be a part of this joyous celebration but this week's story focuses on the bridal party itself those who were expecting to be involved in the wedding and it makes sense when we think about the context because two weeks ago Jesus was speaking with the Pharisees those who had rejected him and rejected John's invitation to them to repent but now he is speaking to his followers. He is speaking to those who claim to love him. So if you're someone that loves Jesus, if you're a Christian, then this is most definitely a message for you. So why does he choose a wedding as the setting for this story? Well, in order to fully grasp this story, I think we just need to improve our understanding of Jewish weddings in the first century a little bit because they weren't quite the same as weddings that we have today. In those days there were three stages or three parts to the wedding. To begin with there was the engagement. Now these days most people go off somewhere vaguely romantic and they get down on one knee and then they post a picture of a hand on Facebook with the, the tagline, OMG, look what just happened. And if they're really traditional, they may go um, uh, and ask the bride's father for permission before getting engaged. But often that's not the case. But back in Jesus' day, the engagement was a formal agreement made between both families, normally made by the patriarchs of the family, the fathers. And it was far less to do with the couple and far more about the families coming together. This was because after the marriage, the newlyweds wouldn't go and live alone. They would move into the groom's family home. Therefore, the groom's family was expected to compensate the bride's family for the loss of their daughter. They were gaining a daughter whilst the bride's family were losing one. And normally this compensation involved some amount of money or land and some agreement would be drawn up. It isn't quite the same as a dowry because the father of the bride would be expected to give a portion of that price to the bride herself to take into her marriage. And the groom was expected to buy gifts for the bride that were just for her as well. 
But all of this needed to be worked out by the families first. What was her value to the family? How much should the family be compensated? And so on and so on. It was tricky. After the price had been paid, the couple entered the second stage, the betrothal. And this involved another sort of agreement. At the point of betrothal, the couple were considered legally married, but the bride remained at her father's home and the groom was expected to provide for her. Although they were legally married, the marriage was not consummated until the wedding, which took place a year or perhaps two years later. So there's this long period of waiting. And during this time, the bride was considered set apart for her groom. She was to be kept for him only. The only way out of a betrothal was through divorce, and it was serious stuff. And she was expected to be faithful to her fiancé while they were apart. And while they were apart, the groom would prepare things for the marriage. He would get a space ready in his father's home where they would ultimately live together. This wasn't like tidying his bedroom. He would actually build an extension onto the house where they could be together. And there'd be precious little time for him to see his fiancée, so it was customary for him to send a chaperone to make sure she was being cared for while she waited for him to return. And then finally, when all was ready, the groom would make the journey to collect his bride. And often this was, this was done at night. The groom's men would run ahead of him and announce his imminent arrival with the sound of trumpets. And the bride's unmarried friends would light torches and accompany the groom to the bride. And then normal wedding night stuff would happen. I guess while the guests waited around awkwardly. And then when that was done, they would go on to the groom's house where the party would begin. And the celebration would be incredible. It would last for days. There would be like a whole week of partying. And that was a first century Jewish wedding, quite different from our weddings that we try and get done in a, an afternoon. And so this is the kind of wedding that Jesus had in mind when he was telling his followers this story. Now, if we engage our imagination for a minute or two, if we think about what was happening in Jesus' ministry at this time, it's not hard to see why Jesus would choose this particular illustration. Jesus is about to go to the cross. This story is in Matthew 25. Matthew 26 is the last supper where he tells his disciples, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed in my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. This is where he broke the bread and said, this is my body given for you. You know, when we celebrate communion, we think about the price that was paid for us on the cross. Because just as the father of a bride might be satisfied with a certain price paid to him for his daughter's hand in marriage, so God is satisfied with the sacrifice that was made by Jesus for us on the cross. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, we have been brought with a price. So this is like our engagement. And then there's the, the period of betrothal, where the groom goes back to his father's house to prepare a place for him and his bride to be. 
In fact, Jesus tells his followers in John 14, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. So this is just like the period of betrothal. Jesus knows that the time is coming soon when he and his followers will be apart. And so you can see how this picture of a wedding in its first century context starts to come alive. We, us here today, have been brought with a price. We're set apart for God and we are waiting on his return. And as we wait, he is preparing a place for us. And we anticipate, we look forward to, we long for that day. So this is where the bridesmaids come in. They know the groom is coming. His arrival is imminent. Perhaps word arrived earlier that day that he was on his way back. So the bridesmaids, they gather their torches or lamps and it's getting dark. And so they light them and they head on out ready to meet the groom. That excited anticipation. He's coming back at last. However, the groom is longer than expected. We've been waiting a long time. I mean, it's been, what, 2,000 years or so since Jesus? You know, interestingly, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, wrote in his letter um, about this very fact. He says, you must understand in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires, they will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But then he says, do not forget one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. You know, it's only a long time for us. And so the bridesmaids, they wait and they become drowsy and fall asleep. They nod off. Only to be woken by the sound of the groomsmen shouting, Here he is! Come and meet him! And the trumpets sound and quickly they grab their lamps and they get them relit. Only in that moment, in that moment of panic and crisis, some find that they are ill-prepared to meet him. And contained within that image, that moment of panic by the bridesmaids, there is this question for us, here and now, today. Are we ready for his return? It's a simple yet profoundly challenging question. If Jesus were to walk through your door this morning, would you run to greet him? Or would you look for another way to get out of the house? And here's the point. They all begin in the same place, these bridesmaids, with anticipation, with hope, with excitement. They all went out to meet him. And they all fell asleep. The only difference between them is that some were prepared for the long wait, while others were not. So how can we ensure that we're ready for Jesus' return? Well, in the story, five of the bridesmaids were not ready because their lamps had gone out. They had no oil with which to light them again. And so the question that many people have asked of, of this story over the years is, well, well, what does the oil represent? How can I make sure I have enough? Where do I get it? And people have suggested various things. And one of the popular suggestions is that the oil represents the Holy Spirit. You know, because at various points in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is referred to as, as oil. And 
it's a nice idea, but I'm not sure that's it. Because whilst the Holy Spirit certainly helps us in our faith, in fact, Jesus said to his followers, I, before he left, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you. I don't think that Jesus is telling us a story about the Holy Spirit. I think Jesus is telling us a story about our commitment in his absence. Remember the context. The disciples want to know what's going to happen while Jesus is not with them. And he's already told them that some of them aren't going to last the distance. In fact, this isn't the first time Jesus has encouraged them in this way. In another conversation with his disciples in Luke 12, he tells them, Be dressed and ready for service. Keep your lamps burning. Like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet. There it is again. So that when he comes back and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. And it will be good for those servants whose master finds them waiting when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve and will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. The King James version of the passage in Luke 12 says, Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. Pull up your trousers. Get ready. The message says, keep your shirts on. Look the part. Take your responsibility seriously. Keep going. And so we need to be asking ourselves the question, where are we with God? Have we given up? Have we perhaps put our spiritual lounge pants on, turned off the lights? Or are we ready for him to return at any moment? You know, when Paul is writing his final letter to his protege, Timothy, he says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. I remind you, Tim, don't let the fire go out. Keep burning. Don't become complacent in your walk with God, because there are consequences. And you see, <clears throat> Jesus makes another point in this story as well, and perhaps a more serious one. Because after the groom arrives, half the wedding party, those that have found themselves unprepared, they begin to petition those who have prepared. Give us, give us some of your oil with you. But of course they reply, no, there won't be enough for both of us. You have to go and find your own. But the thing is this. It's the middle of the night. No one is selling oil at midnight. Which means by the time morning rolls around, they're all back at the groom's father's house and the door is shut. They've missed out. The opportunity has gone. And I think the point Jesus is making to his disciples is simply this. The decision to be a part of my kingdom rests entirely on you. Just catch that. You won't be invited into God's kingdom by who you know, only by your own preparation. Maybe you had Christian parents who were regular church goers, godly people. Perhaps you have friends who say that they love and follow Jesus. Or perhaps you went to a youth group when you were younger. Or maybe you even go to church once in a while. Or perhaps have something of an interest in God and are desiring to find out a bit more. The Bible says unless you believe in Jesus for yourself, none of it will matter. Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 10, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe 
and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. It's got to be personal. We cannot rely on the salvation of others. And we cannot be slow in making the decision. Because we don't know when he's coming back. The shock ending of this story is that the bridesmaids turn up the next morning and they're told, Truly, I don't know you. They are unrecognisable as part of the wedding. And this is the genius of the story because the point wasn't that they had no oil, but in their absence, in their time away, they became unrecognisable as part of the wedding party. Let me just put that into a modern context for a minute. Imagine if ten bridesmaids turned up late at a wedding venue, five in one car and five in another, each asking to be let through the security gate so they can join the party. In the first car, they're all wearing appropriate wedding clothes, the dresses picked out by the bride that match the colour scheme, they've had their hair done and the makeup and so on and so on. But in the second car, they're dressed in tracksuits and they look like they've just rolled out of bed. Who are you going to believe belongs at the wedding? I mean, the answer is obvious, right? In Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, he tells his followers, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, allow God to transform you to such an extent that you are instantly recognisable as a child of God on that day when he returns. Look like you belong to the wedding party. That's our responsibility. And you know what? That's what keeps us faithful. The moment we stop living for him, our love quickly grows cold. Before long, we lose the joy of our salvation. We become second car bridesmaids. Unrecognisable. There's a brilliant verse in Titus chapter 2 that reads, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. This is who we are. This is us. People brought with a price. People set aside for God, living our lives in such a way that when he comes back, we are instantly recognisable as his. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. No, of course not. But it means that we try to live as his people. And you know, the stories that we've looked at in this series, they help us to understand how to do that. They contain within them the secrets of the kingdom of heaven and they teach us how to live lives that are filled with compassion. Lives that are filled with mercy and generosity, forgiveness, love and grace. And the more these things manifest themselves in our lives, the more our lamps will shine brightly. So this is our final challenge in this series. Firstly, do we know Jesus for ourselves? Or are we kind of banking on the preparation of others? Because Jesus tells us that it won't be enough 
We have to believe for ourselves. And secondly, for those of us who do know Jesus, are we keeping our lamps lit in expectation of his return, ready to meet him face to face? Or are we letting them go out? Are we hiding them under a bowl? You know, Jesus finishes that story by saying, therefore keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour. Are we ready?